Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway here with Cameron Conway, and we're finding ourselves halfway through the year, over halfway, it's almost August 2023, and it's time to do our check-in with our resident investment specialist, Cameron Conway. So Cameron, how do you think the markets have done so far this year? Uh, nothing is working the way it's supposed to. That is probably the easiest way I can put it. Whether you look at the charts, whether you listen to The Economist, no one really seems to know what's going on anymore. And earlier this year, there was a general consensus that winter was coming. I mean, that's something that we had set ourselves. The general mechanics of things when you have central banks that are using contractionary policies, so they're trying to slow things down, that typically tips economies into a recession, but that hasn't happened so far. So maybe let's look into why the markets are doing so well and what that means for the future. Can we expect this optimism to continue or is this just another strange one-off scenario where things are in this weird backward stranger land? Well, I think it's more of this. We're just kind of in the weirder, stranger land where there is a handful of success stories, but a lot of fundamentals are still kind of troubled. And you can kind of see this by how, well, unsettled and confused a lot of the economists are. So kind of give some context. So at Braun, we get access to mountains of data from pretty much every, almost every major insurance company and through some of the insurance company, we get access to even more fund companies. And so everything from Manulife, RBC, Global Asset Management, JP Morgan, Brandywine, T. Rowe Price, MFS, and a whole bunch of others I can't think of off the top of my head. So we get a lot of raw data and we get a lot of curated data. We get a lot of economist opinions. And over the last, well, couple of years now, it, the general consensus is things do not work like they used to anymore. So it's been harder to project things or even the whole recession talk. It was supposed to be in Q1 this year, then Q2 this year. Now it's Q3 for some people. Some people it's Q4. Some people it's Q1 next year. And there just seems to be enough of like a handful of good stories, which is kind of swaying the markets away. But there's still a lot of kind of fundamentals that people are trying to grasp. And that's why people keep calling for a recession and problems where other industries are just exploding and are doing better than ever. Well, and I think what makes these times different than what we've experienced previously is the level of manipulation that goes into it on a government level and on a central bank level. And what I mean by that, through COVID, we saw these injections of capital that we had been through COVID, we had seen these injections of capital from the governments at different levels, different governments that were trying to stimulate an economy that was artificially shut down. And we've got a little bit of that continuing on. Now, as a recession approaches, businesses are going to be a bit more wary of investing capital. And the interest rate alone is enough of a disincentive at this point in time for people to want to put too much money out there, especially if they're engaging in a project that is going to require multiple expenditures over a multi-year period. So the big types of projects that kind of employ more people for a longer period of time might be 
not looking so attractive on paper right now. So that's something to consider from a corporate point of view. And of course, that's going to depend on the type of company that we're looking at and the type of industry it's in as well. Well, I guess a good example, even before all of like the recession downturn talk would probably been the oil industry where they kind of saw the way prices were going and most of the Canadian producers kind of flat out said, no more capital expenditures, we're just going to funnel everything through dividends. And this is kind of something that's kind of kept up. And the question has always been, even back then, like a year and a half ago or two years ago, how many other companies would kind of follow suit with the calling back on CapEx and just redistributing the profits instead. But now that is kind of getting compounded where many industries are just being hesitant to build out and develop, but then you got other industries that are actively trying to take advantage of a government subsidies and new programs of both sides of the border. So you got this kind of push and pull from different sectors and different industries kind of going their own different directions. And the whole market itself is kind of stuck in this tug of war in the middle where it's not doing great. It's not doing bad, but there's just so much pressure on both sides until something snaps. Well, and GDP projections, which is something that we all look at as kind of the what is the expectation going forward, are still very, very, very low. And I think that that is something that we always have to keep in mind, because how much are we projecting to grow overall as an economy, overall as a country? And GDP numbers attempt to capture that. So do you want to talk about that for a few minutes? And then maybe we can get into a little bit more specifics of the different indexes and what's been doing well and what hasn't been. Yeah, I'll just kind of touch on Canada US GDP for a second. It's been called down from what it was a couple of years ago. And it kind of depending where you go, there can be a pretty wide gap in what's expected. Yeah, kind of the more bullish one I found was actually from the uh, International Monetary Fund for Canada, where they're projecting a uh, 1.7% GDP growth. But then you have a more kind of reserved bearish one from, say, like RBC Global Asset Management, where it's a 0.6% GDP growth. So even among these people who you would think would be in more lockstep with their projections have a very big gap. like it, there's a big difference in GDP numbers between a 1.7 and a 0.6. Well, and yeah, and like we've said prior, GDP is essentially a measure of output. So it's one way of determining how we're producing as a country, right? So anytime you see a low or even a negative GDP number, that kind of says that on a company level, things have slowed down to the point where, like we were saying, capital projects maybe are not being taken out at the same level as they would in a growing economy. Yeah, and to kind of piggyback off of that, so on the U.S. side, you kind of see a, a similar divergence where IMF is looking at like a 1.8% growth in 2023 for the Americans, where RBC is looking at 1%. So you kind of see how wide of a gap it is, or these numbers make a little bit more sense for the U.S. because they really can go two different ways depending on how aggressive they get with their infrastructure bill and their new green initiatives and the, just their way of trying to dig out of recession, which we'll talk about later. This is a big difference from the 2% actual the Americans saw in 2022 or even the 3.4% actual that we saw in 2022 in Canada. So it does show there's still a consensus of things kind of scaling back a little bit. But I think part of it, too, is just figuring out who's going to be the winners and who's going to be the short-term losers. 
So let's start by talking about the indexes, because that gives us a broad overall picture of how different economies are performing. So why don't we start in Canada and talk to me about the S&P TSX composite. Yeah, so this is Canada's main stock index. So you have the TSX, which is the entire entire Toronto Stock Exchange, and then you have the S&P composite, which is sort of like the top core group of Canadian companies in terms of volumes, market share, and all of that. And kind of the more interesting things is that in Canada, we are actually pretty heavily weighted towards certain industries and sectors. So for example, 72% of the S&P TSX composite is made up of energy, finance, industrials, and materials. Compared to like the S&P 500 in the United States, where those same categories only make up 28% of their index. So that's a pretty significant mix, right? And in different periods of time, different sectors will perform well. So some periods of time, energy will do very well. But of course, energy prices are constantly fluctuating and that can determine the outlook. Or like you had said previously, with oil companies making a change to how they're going to distribute capital. Yeah, which is why it makes Canada such an odd mix. We're just in terms of investing, we are just very dependent on oil companies, pipeline companies, banks, railways, and raw mineral material producers. Whereas opposed to the States, it's more of like a tech healthcare service and it's kind of just general output economy. So Canada is much more susceptible in a lot of areas to what's going on with the interest rates right now with peaks and valleys in demand and supplies and all the other kind of stuff. So it does vary wildly year to year what is sort of like the top performing sectors within the entire TSX. Because if you do some more fancy digging, you can see the TSX S&P, but you can also look up the sort of sub indexes, which are grouped together by the different categories. So when I was kind of getting ready for this, I was curious to see like which were some of the big like year to date winners. So from January 1st, 2023 to about July 28th is when I did my research. I wanted to see which of the subsectors of the TSX were actually doing the best comparative to each other. And the numbers were actually kind of interesting what I found. So kind of the big three year-to-date winners turned out to be technology and consumer discretionary and industrials. And I'll kind of break these down pretty quick. So information tech as a whole in their sort of subset index is up almost 48% this year so far. And this is interesting because it only makes up about 7.86% of the total S&P TSX index. So they kind of did a bit more digging in. It's interesting because we don't really think of tech as a big thing in Canada. We can think of BlackBerry 20 years ago being kind of the poster child and then they kind of just fell off the map. But just in the American size, we'll see their tech sector has kind of been booming this year. We're seeing something similar with some of the bigger names in Canada, where you have Shopify, for example, where they're up almost 86% year to date, and they're up almost 94% on a year to year basis. Or you got a company like uh, Celestica, which is more of a uh, automation assistant to help with manufacturing. They're up almost 65% year to date. And then BlackBerry, out of nowhere, it's up 40% year to date. And they have Constellation Software, which has kind of turned itself into this conglomerate of hundreds and hundreds of different software companies, up 31% year to date. Now, there has been some ups and downs in this sector, but still like on a year to year and a half averaging, they're still actually doing decent. And it's showing one of those small areas in the Canadian economy, which actually has been performing well so far in 2023. 
So then we can move down to the consumer discretionary, where year-to-date it's up about 11.5%, and it represents just under 4% of the total index. And this one is made up of like a bit more household names where you got like premium brands holding, which is like uh, freebie sausage and dozens of other food processing companies, which is up 30% year to date. Or you've got Armation Couchard, which is like a Circle K and the Mac stores. And they're kind of like the go-to company if you want to invest in like convenience gas stations and all that. They've been growing pretty good and steadily for like 10 years, but even this year they're up almost 14%. Then you got Maple Leaf Foods up almost 12%, which is like another raw food producer. And it's just been interesting that seeing the year-to-date numbers, you're not really seeing much of like the core major grocery stores. And it's ironic where only Empire, which kind of controls uh, Safeway and Sobeys, they're the only one in positive territory year-to-date. So even with all of the quote-unquote gouging and Loblaw's 500 million net income, their stock is still lagging right now which is kind of something that most people wouldn't expect the way things have been lately. Yeah, and the third big winner so far on the TSX this year has actually been the industrials, which is up uh, 8.75% right now, and it makes up about 13.5% of the total index. So normally when you kind of get into the industrial sector, you expect it to be like uh, CP Kansas City or CN Rail or companies like that. But the really interesting thing is that sort of in the top three best performers this year, you've got uh, SNC-Lavalin and you've got Stantec, where SNC-Lavalin is up almost 57% and Stantec is up 36%. So if you don't know, these are uh, engineering companies, project management companies. They're the ones where you say, build me a bridge and they'll go build you a bridge or a tower. They kind of handle all that. Also, SNC-Lavalin has their own little reputation, which most people have seen in the news. And Stantec is their primary publicly traded competitor in Canada. So it's been actually interesting to see these two types of companies doing so well because people are thinking there's going to be slowdowns construction and building projects, but it seems like they've managed to lock in work and there is still lots of optimism and seeing stocks up 50% or 30% over this past seven month period, it has been actually quite interesting and the guess is that they're going to take advantage of the green initiatives which was in the last canadian budget they've got operations in the states so again they'll just take advantage of the infrastructure bill the friend shoring and all that other kind of stuff to kind of get more things built be it manufacturing core infrastructure bridges towers waste management stuff anything you can build they can kind of do for you Yeah, and we've had an interesting conversation this past week. Uh, If we look across the border to the U.S., where their central bank is in the same position as ours is, and they are in a place of rising interest rate environments and of contraction that is trying to kind of work its way through the economy so that inflation calms down. But they have an interesting and kind of something that we've seen before in other countries way of attacking this recession problem. And that is to build their way out of it. So that's when companies like SNC-Lavalin and that Stantec will make a big impact, right? Because what is the best way for a country to keep people employed, 
to keep people moving forward, to keep their consumer and their discretionary spending up, which, like we said, that was the big surprise to me looking at how things have gone across the indexes, is that consumer discretionary really hasn't slowed down yet, even though people have higher debt servicing costs than they have in quite some time. And I think what we're seeing is a divide in the population where there are those that have these huge crippling debts that are taking all of their income. But we also have a very large subset of the population that does not have debt at that level. And even though they've seen, you know, five, 10, well, I think 8% on most line of credits right now, uh, interest, they're still able to float those and still spend maybe not at the same level they were spending before, but they are still contributing to the growth in the consumer discretionary space. But let's talk for a minute about this idea of building your way about out of a recession. Can you speak to that a little bit for a minute and explain how that works? Yeah, well, it's essentially what you said, where the Americans are kind of positioning themselves with the subsidies and government assistance to essentially just keep throwing money at new projects. And the interesting thing here is that they are throwing it at corporations to help them build manufacturing, as opposed to what we saw in Canada, kind of like an 0809, where we threw that money into building highways where it was like government run projects for government purposes, where this way it's going to be more of a develop the manufacturing system, but kind of get everything back to the 1950s where things were being built kind of from beginning to end in North America, in the States. And we've already kind of seen the growth through that. Like uh, Taiwan Semiconductor is looking to build a, a new massive plant in the States. There's been a bunch of other ones. There's been all kinds of growth. I just saw uh, First Solar a couple of days ago announced they're going to build their fifth plant in the United States. And this is sort of their way to kind of push through a recession, which is to re-diversify their economy on the manufacturing side, get jobs back in and kind of stimulate the economy that way, which I think is a much healthier way to go about it than the Canadian method right now, which is to import an infinite amount of people to artificially inflate the bottom lines for corporations and make it look like the economy is stronger than it really is. But that's probably something we can get into a little bit later. Well, yeah, I mean, mass immigration has its downsides as well, like needing the housing, needing the public services and the resources from hospitals to schools to water systems um, to waste management to all of that, right? So you have to have an infrastructure for an ever-growing population. But I think that the way that the States is doing it right now, at least to what we've seen so far, this has been proven. Like we've seen this happen before in China. We've seen it happen with great success before in other places around the world. Well, you don't even have to look around the world, it's the exact same thing the Americans did after World War II. They built their way through manufacturing out of kind of that post-war downturn, and they just had their 20, 30 years of a booming manufacturing side until someone in management or an actuary or an executive said, hey, let's just move it over here and do it cheaper. And now we're kind of circling back to how it was before. But this is what we were talking about at the very beginning of the show, where we are now in a place where we have to manufacture, no pun intended, uh, these continuations to the economy because letting things take their normal path like they had previously in other cycles just doesn't work anymore. There's too much artificial stimulation going in. There's 
too much dependence now on needing a little bit of a push on the proverbial swing to keep things moving. But like I said, I think this is absolutely brilliant. And like you'd mentioned, Cam, the idea of this big boom that we saw after the Great Depression, after the war, when things started to roar again, that could be the beginning of the next cycle if this is pulled off properly. And I I put a big asterisk on that because who knows how this is going to play out. But I'm hoping that the powers that be and the people in smart places that are making salaries much larger than mine and decisions much larger than mine um, will be making these choices that will lead to another boom. Yeah, and with that kind of growth and that kind of expectation, that kind of reorganizing of supply chains and manufacturing hubs, it's actually something that kind of got flagged in uh, IMF's most recent Global Outlook report, which came out earlier this month. And they're kind of saying that part of the problem with global economic recovery is the threat of kind of the fracturing of supply chains, where they're worried that this block of countries will only deal with itself. This block of countries will only deal with itself. And it's going to kind of destabilize what's been built for the last 20 years, whether that's good or bad, that's up to you. But that's something that's being looked at as the overall global economy is that the West is going to become more self-sufficient again. And it'll be inter- interesting to see what sort of the old manufacturers do in response. So how they adapt, whether they do, whether they don't. Or if other players just take up more of the market share, which is what we're already starting to see with like South Korea and Japan kind of working more lockstep with Western countries because there is just less worry in the eyes of businesses to do business there than somewhere else. But we kind of fell off track a little bit. We were talking about the TSX. Yeah, well, why don't we circle around and talk about what hasn't worked so far, whether on the indexes or in company level as well. Um, We talked a bit about the good. We kind of (laughs) circled that larger than we had expected to more of a broader economy conversation, took you into the background of the conversations that we've been having ourselves at our office. And let's talk about what's gone wrong so far in 2023. What's gone wrong is just that every time someone says it's going to get better, it doesn't get better. Someone says it's not going to get better and it gets better. And it just confuses people, it confuses the market, it gets people skittish, and then there's the continued issues in Europe. You, there's the continued saber rattling with China. So there's just a lot of apprehension and kind of circling back to like the, the sector sub indexes and the TSX. The only one that's actually in negative territory for the last seven months is energy, which is down about 2.3% and makes up about 17% of the total index. But at the same time, a lot of that is oil prices is kind of been locked below the $80 a barrel threshold, despite numerous attempts by uh, OPEC and the Saudis to kind of push that up. It just refuses to cross that threshold. And the better thing for homeowners is that natural gas prices are back to normal after almost what going up four or five times over during the early part of the uh, Russian Ukrainian war prices are essentially back down to where they were like three, four years ago. I think it's about like 250, 260 cubic, cubic foot, something like that. So energy has kind of lost its luster from the big rush it had during the beginning of the war with COVID and things have kind of settled back down. But then kind of looking at other sectors, uh, materials that are only up uh, 0.6%, but that's mostly from, well, Drops in silver prices where you got like bag silver down 26%. Uh, First Majestic is down about 25% year to date. And then even uh, Nova Gold. 
down almost 30% for the year so far. And then the only other real big loser in the TSX is healthcare, but there's kind of a giant asterisk on there because uh, the sub-index on the TSX company is only about five or six companies. Well, and I mean, if we're looking at this on a year-over-year comparison, when you've had really positive years, that does also skew things comparatively to the negative, right? So you can still be doing okay, but your year-over-year comparison might look not so great. No, and that's kind of the bigger worries that I've kind of seen from several economists now is that profit margins were so good in like 2021, 2022 because of a whole host of different issues we don't have time to get through today, but it essentially overinflated profit margins. And there's worry that there's going to be a kind of reverse swing of that pendulum, which is going to knock out some companies, not like take them out, but it's going to hurt their stock prices where all of a sudden they can't have double digit profit margins anymore. And we kind of saw a bit of that effect in tech earlier this year when we had the mass rounds of layoffs. Part of layoffs was just overstaffing during COVID. And the other part of it is that they had this great year of margins, but then things kind of normalized again. And those margins went back to normal and different investors got pretty uppity about it. Well, that's right. When your margins are good and you're hiring more staff, you're committing more of that margin to something that's essentially an outflow, right? So when the cash is not there anymore, you have to recalibrate and do so very quickly. And that's what can tip the scales into layoffs like we saw earlier this year. Yeah. And the interesting thing, though, is those layoffs have really only hit the American tech sector. It hasn't really creeped across other areas yet, which has been something that, well, the central banks, the economists have been kind of been waiting for because that's sort of like the next big lever to be thrown in a prediction for recession is a multi-sector layoff spree, which again is something we haven't really seen yet. No, and actually the opposite, right? Job numbers have been very consistently good over the last little while. And I think that has been one of the biggest surprises that even though we're in a higher interest rate environment, I think, who knows, like, let's play devil's advocate for a second. Maybe companies have saved enough money in downsizing office space that they're able to keep staff on a little bit longer. I don't know, right? Maybe the cost structure on their own balance sheet has shifted to the point where people aren't necessarily the first thing that has to be cut anymore, like we have seen historically happen. Well, even with that example, with the office shutting, that shows, again, this big split between different sectors where, yeah, the the REITs and the real estate companies are suffering and they're down because of lack of office space. And I saw this one really interesting sub-subsector report where it shows like within the real estate sector, the two groups which are actually performing the best this year are uh, self-storage and malls, where offices are kind of near the bottom in performance. So self-storage, so people have downsized and need a place to put their stuff. And corporate or commercial real estate, yes, we are seeing that as people's leases come up, they have to make a decision at a management level as to whether or not they're going to retain that space or cut it down in size. And that will speak to each company's decision about work from home, how permanent they want it to be, or what a hybrid solution will look like for them. Like, do you have a bunch of people that are now just sharing one desk if they're in on different days of the week? Do you need fewer spaces for individuals, fewer workstations? Or do you want to keep that same capacity that you had before? Yeah, exactly. So there's just all these different moving parts kind of going along. And I know so far this episode, we've just been talking about like the last seven months and the year to date, but kind of my habit is to look 
at the multi-year approach. This is something we do all the time. I go back and forth between the year-to-date, one-year, three-year, five-year, 10-year charts when I'm looking at funds because we were dealing with 20, 30, 40-year plans for people. And I wanted to see what the kind of big five winners and losers were in the TSX over the last five years to kind of bring some context to a lot of what's going on here. So in the TSX, the five big winners on a percentage basis has been uh, technology, consumer staples, and industrials. Over the last five years, tech is up 18%, consumer staples are up 12%, and industrials are up 11%. So this kind of really encapsulates like the rush we had in 2018-19, the big crash we had in 2020, the recovery, and sort of this strange middle ground we're in now, where we're seeing like, yeah, 30, 40, 50% rises in some stocks right now, but these overall sector indexes are looking more realistic where yeah we're seeing 18 percent in tech over five years but that's from three crashes and two rebounds baked into it well and i think zooming out the focus for a little bit to these five years because like you said it's been a wild ride with covid with everything that's happened in between it really does give you a more balanced picture and when you're kind of in it and you've seen things go down 30 percent, you go oh my goodness sell everything uh, if you've made it through that period and you've held you've actually done very well right so that old kind of turn of phrase that says just sometimes don't look <laughs> and hang on for the ride really can benefit, especially when we're in these strange situations where there's lots of money on the table uh, through government organizations, through grants, through subsidizations, through other things that can help keep the wheel spinning even through tough times. Yeah. And so let's just kind of contrast that and look at the worst three performing over the last five years. And uh, number one, which really shouldn't be much of a surprise, but people would inspect it, is healthcare. Again, the giant asterisk is that there's only like five or six companies on this sub-index and three of them have to do with retirement homes. So over the last five years, they're their cumulative value has dropped by about 29%. Well, that's right. I mean, if you're looking at retirement homes, I think COVID left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths when they were determining for themselves what kind of living arrangements they want or for their loved ones. And that is probably doubly, triply, quadruply true for the privately run ones after what we saw in Ontario. Yeah, I think a lot of people felt like they lost their freedoms through the lockdown. People felt like they were living in solitary confinement in some ways, which is something that from a mental health point of view, you don't want to impose on anyone. Um, of course, organizations had to do what they had to do, especially for a vulnerable subset of the population and especially for people whose health might already be compromised. Of course, they're just trying to keep people safe. But I think that along with that, came the popularity of people trying to stay in their own homes or trying to look for other scenarios whenever possible or hiring like the nurse next door types of organization that are kind of bringing health care to you. But I've always liked the idea of retirement homes just for the activities, for the cooking that's done for you, for the nurses available and the services that are available. But when you see something like COVID, of course, it can damage the way you feel about that as a solution. And of course, we're all going to hit a point in time in our life where we don't really have a choice. But for those that do, maybe they're thinking about things a little bit differently, having seen what we saw with COVID. Yeah. And so talking about buildings, uh, the next worst performing one was real estate, which over five years, their sub-index is only up about 3.77%. And for context, they, this makes up about 
only 2.4% of the TSX composite. But again, we're kind of seeing that counter swing now where offices are failing, REITs are collapsing. I've lost count of how many REITs I've seen in the last six months uh, suspend their dis their distributions to investors. So it's actually interesting seeing that they're still in positive territory after five years. And then the last one we'll talk about is just energy, where that sector subset of the index is only up 5.71%. So again, it captured sort of the slipping it had post-COVID, the giant high it had. Like I saw one fund kind of mid-COVID where it was up like 200%, but now things have kind of normalized. And now if you just did an ETF in the energy subsector and the TSX, you'd have only made 5.7%. I think that would surprise a lot of people, right? Especially when we were in those real highs and everyone was saying, hey, this is the only thing that's performing. Because I think for a while there, energy was a real standout compared to uh, its peer categories. And it just shows you what a volatile asset class it can be, right? Or what a volatile subcategory it can be. Um, just because for all the reasons Cam has discussed previously, like the pricing and the vulnerability of that. Yeah, and there's just one more sector I just want to highlight pretty quick before we wrap up for today. So it's the banks, it's the financials. And this is a big one because this is sort of like a backstop to most people's portfolios. And you see this in TSX where it makes up almost 31% of the index is these banking stocks. And over five years, it's only up by 5.7% also. You'd think that this would be a little higher because this is such a lockstep part of pretty much every single Canadian equity fund on the SEG side and the mutual side. Anything with the word Canadian equity in it, you pull it up, you'll see two or three bank stocks and a couple of insurance companies. It's just guaranteed. You, you look at hundreds of them like I do, it's just always there. Right in the top 10. That's right. And I think that with banks, you're always looking at their profit margins, but we've had conversations in the past about their reserve requirements and how those have changed and cut into profitability in hard times. And I think a lot of banks are stress testing their portfolios right now for vulnerability. Um, my goodness, I think we're lucky at this point that we haven't seen a lot of banks call loans, especially non-secured loans, because when things get more vulnerable, that's something that can happen, right? So that's a conversation for another day, but... Yeah, well, the bank are just going to kind of let the loans slide, let the mortgages slide and hope for the best because they always have that assumption that someone will just swoop in and bail them out, which is exactly what uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh suggested on July 18th when he was in Windsor, where he kind of said that we should just subsidize people who are struggling with their mortgage. So there's just, there's no risk. So why not? So you're not in favor of a real estate crash in Canada then, eh? Oh, no, I'm not saying, I'm saying it's not going to happen. <laughs> There you go. You've heard it definitively here from Cam's opinion. But um, but like you said, well, what did he quote there? There are other countries that have had subsidization of homeowners. Now, we're not going to talk about the fairness of this today because there's a lot of people that don't like that from a politics point of view. Um, there's people that can't get into the housing market that get pretty bitter when they hear about people that are in and that have made huge profits over the last few years um, can now get subsidized. But I think it's a large enough section of the population that when people can't spend money, yeah, it can be a tipping point for the overall economy. And it can cause a lot of pain in people's personal lives and in terms of the decisions that they have to make. 
So big five-year losers, I mean, the one that really stood out to me in your kind of talk about that, Cam, is the real estate. And I'm assuming that was relating to primarily commercial. Is that correct? Yeah. So this is like the the uh, publicly traded REITs, the big ownership companies, or even things like Brookfield, which probably kind of gets thrown under the bus in this time. But it's a lot of these smaller REITs or even just how so many, oh, how do I say this right? How many department stores like Canadian Tire, the Bay and all the others kind of consolidated all their property into their own REITs, which they own themselves. They can get a tax write off because they're charging themselves rent to stay in these buildings, which is owned by the sub company, owned by the parent. There's this big scheme that went on like five or six years ago, but it's kind of been hit. But it's mostly the companies who own buildings outright, predominantly offices and commercial. They've been taking the big hit lately. Well, and all you really have to do is walk around your local mall and kind of see what the vacancies are or see how many hands have changed changed in terms of businesses that have moved or downsized. And I think especially if you go into like a downtown core, wherever you are, you can see a lot more of that these days than you could in the last few years anyways. Uh, Better than shuttering, of course, but you know, every business faces their challenge. It's part of being in business. So I think that's probably a good look at the Canadian economy, at least where we stand now at the end of July 2023. And we didn't get into this whole long list of notes that I see that you have here for the US and the international markets global. Uh, So maybe we'll look at that next week. So why don't we call this part one of part two of our market update. And then next week, Cam will amaze and entertain you again with global markets and US markets and everything that we see happening at this point in time, especially in terms of how we think it'll play out uh, in the months to come. Yeah. And kind of, we like enjoying these kind of episodes once in a while, because this is a lot of stuff we go through and talk about with our clients, with our own prep to get ready for things. This is all stuff that we kind of have to keep a really close eye on when we're recommending funds for clients. So it's nice for us to kind of share this with you as we kind of put in all this work and research ourselves. Oh, absolutely. Uh, We've said this before in this type of environment, it's not enough to just say, let's pick balance fund A or dividend fund B. You really have to dig into who's making up these funds and why are they in there? Does it make sense? What are their outlooks? How is their sector going to do? How is the industry going to do? What's the overall outlook for the economy? So it's a multi-step process and one that fortunately Cam loves doing this research. So we kind of get it done very, very well and on an ongoing basis. And of course that gets complemented by conversations that we are allowed to have with our portfolio managers, with our wholesalers and reps, just because when your company gets to a certain size, you're privileged to a lot of uh, people that otherwise would close the door to you pretty quickly. So we're able to take all of that information and bring it to you. Yeah. And don't forget the 100 page economy updates we get from a whole bunch of different people. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Those will never stop. But um, that's that's part of the deal here. So let's call that a wrap for this week and tune in next week to hear the rest of the story. And we'll piece it all together as the whole outlook for the remainder of 2023. Now, like we mentioned, this is something that we do on a regular basis for our clients. So if you find yourself in the BC area and you're looking to become a client, by all means, reach out to us at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com. And we are in the process of establishing relationships with other advisors that we're vetting outside of our province as well. 
So if you find yourself looking for someone good in your local area, feel free to reach out to us at Braun Financial and we will see what we can do. It won't be our advice necessarily, but we are trying to find people that we can vet in different areas that we can develop referral relationships with so that it can benefit you and that we'll have the same philosophy as we do. Even if the advice is not exactly the same, at least it'll be along the same lines of thinking. So until next time, take care. And all the best.